In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, O God, Amen. Psalm 103, 104-105 speak about praising God. In Psalm 103, praise God for what He has done to me as a person. 104, praising God for what He has done in the whole world, to the whole creation. 105, which is our psalm tonight, what God has done to the nation of Israel. And the focus here is on the goodness of God, how God was faithful to His promises, even if we are not faithful. Psalm 106, the following psalm, about the rebellion of Israel, about how Israel responded to the faithfulness of God. But here, we will find nothing about the rebellion of Israel. We finished until verse 22. Today we'll start from verse 23. It is one of the historical Psalms, but the purpose is not to mention the history of Israel, but the purpose is to glorify God through his work in Israel. But it is one of the historical Psalms. Verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. So after God sent Joseph ahead, he took the people of Israel into the land of Egypt for their own provision and protection as a people. You know there was a famine there. So God actually sent Jacob and his children and grandchildren to Egypt to provide for their needs. And after uh, that, they settled in Egypt. And after the king who knew Joseph died, and another pharaoh came who oppressed Israel, God actually protected Israel in the land of Egypt. And Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham. In another translation, journeyed or sojourned. Bil-Arabi wa Saint Augustine did not like the translation that has the word dwelt. So the word dwelt in other translation came as Sojourn. Sojourn means journey, it's a journey, like a trip. So sojourner means a person in a journey. Even in the divine liturgy, we are who are sojourners. Sojourners. So sojourner means a person who is a stranger and in a journey for a goal. So the goal is to reach the promised land. Why the correct translation is sojourned and not dwelt? Because Egypt was a temporary place for them until the time come for them to enter into the promised land. St. Augustine said, Israel is the same with Jacob. Speaking about the first half of the verse and second half of the verse. First half, Israel also came to Egypt. 
then he replaced Israel by Jacob and replaced Egypt by the land of Ham because Ham, one of the three sons of Noah and he is the father of Misraim. Misraim is the father of all the Egyptians. So land of Ham is Egypt. So Augustine is saying Israel is the same with Jacob. Egypt is the same land of Ham. Here it is very plainly shown that the Egyptian race sprang from the seed of Ham, the son of Noah. And who is the firstborn of Ham? Canaan. So that in those copies or translations wherein in this passage Canaan is read, we must alter the reading. It is better considered was a stranger or a sojourner than dwelt as other copies have it. So he is saying the land of Canaan is Old Testament because Canaan was cursed by Noah. So it's a land of estrangement, not a land of dwelling, dwelling place. Our dwelling place is the promised land. Like here on earth, we don't have a dwelling place, but we are sojourners here on earth. That's why Egypt in the Old Testament symbolizes land of slavery, Pharaoh symbolizes Satan. So we can not use the word dwelt, but it is sojourned. They were in a journey uh, going to the promised land. And we prefer the word sojourner than even stranger. Because a stranger, he's a stranger, maybe dwelling in a place. But sojourner, he's a journey. So there is a goal. And the goal is the promised land. That's why in the divine liturgy we don't say, we who are strangers in this place. We say, we who are sojourners, we are in a journey going to the promised land. Verse 24, he increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies, their enemies, the Egyptians. So God increased the people of Israel greatly in the land of Egypt. They went down few and became a big nation, as we read in Exodus 1.12, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. They went 70 persons to Egypt, and when they came out of Egypt, they were 600,000 men on foot, beside children. The people of God in this world sometimes increase in number, even during persecution, as Christian did in the beginning under the Roman emperors. Christianity was persecuted in the first centuries, but people multiplied. In Egypt, Israel, God's covenant people, who entered in covenant with God, multiplied with very little intermarriage with the Egyptians. They were able to grow greatly and eventually they became stronger than their enemies. That's why they were scared from the Israelites. They were more healthy and stronger, which was seen and observed by their enemies, as we read in Exodus 1.9. Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. 
And according to St. Augustine, they were stronger by God's powerful hand. When God wills, as we read in Isaiah 60, 22, when God wills, a little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. Verse 25, He, God, turned their heart, the heart of the Egyptian, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Now there is an issue in this verse. Is it God who turned their heart to hate his people? Let us see how can we understand this verse. So the people of Israel were welcomed into the land of Egypt in the days of Joseph. But in later generations, they were hated and made into slaves for the Egyptians. David, in verse 25, attributed the hostility of the Egyptians to God's will, as if it is the will of God to turn their heart to hate. But how can we understand this? It is due to the blessing which God bestowed about Israel. So, they were envious when God blessed Israel. That's why they hated them. God did not plant hatred in the heart of the Egyptian. God blessed the Israelites. This blessing to the Israelite already triggered the envy that existed in the heart of the Egyptians because they were ungodly people. That's why they hated them. But this was part of God's plan because it was part of the Exodus. So it led to the Exodus and it was a link in the chain of God's action. He turned their heart to hate his people. This is said to be of the Lord. Not that he put any hatred into the heart of the Egyptian, or he compelled the Egyptian to hate his people. No. But God's goodness to his people, to Israel, created envy among the Egyptians against Israel. Listen to what St. Augustine said. Is it to be in any wise understood or believed that God turns man's heart to do sin? Can we believe that God make a person hate another person? Absolutely not. For they were, the Egyptians, were not good before they hated Israel. But being malignant and ungodly, they were such as would readily envy their prosperous sojourners. And so, in that, God multiplied his own people. This bountiful act turned the wicked to envy. For envy is the hatred of another's prosperity. In this sense, therefore, he turned their heart, so that through envy they hated his people, dealt untruly with his servants. Verse 26. He sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. With Israel under slavery and bondage in Egypt, 
God raised up deliverers from his people at the appointed time. Moses, who is given the wonderful title, his servant, and his brother Aaron. According to Exodus chapter 4, verse 16, Aaron was chosen so Aaron shall be, God said to Moses, shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. David shows that the reason behind the success of the mission of Moses and Aaron was God's call for them. God is the one who appointed Moses and Aaron. And because they were appointed by God, that's why they were successful in their mission, each of whom had his own role to fulfill God's plan for his people. The role of Moses to be the lawgiver. God gave the law to Moses, and Moses gave it to the people, and Aaron to be their high priest. Verse 27, they, Moses and Aaron, performed his science, miracles, among them, among the Egyptians and Israelites, and wonders in the land of Ham, wonders in Egypt. When God sent Moses and Aaron to deliver his people, he gave them the ability to perform signs. Why? To authenticate their work, to prove they are sent by God. He gave them power to perform miracles in the land of Egypt. That the children of Israel and the Egyptians might believe that they were sent by God and that they should obey them as the messengers of the true and almighty God. Verse 28, he sent the darkness. Now, from verse 28, he'll speak about the plagues. He sent the darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his word. Who did not rebel against his word? The Egyptians or Moses and Aaron? We'll see. So David described in verse 28 and the eight following verses, the wonders in detail that were performed in Egypt, the ten plagues, through which God afflicted Pharaoh and the Egyptians through the plagues. David did not list all the plagues, nor does he observe the order as they are mentioned in the book of Exodus, because he is not writing history, but he is singing a hymn. Darkness was not the first plague, but why he started, why he mentioned darkness? Some say darkness generally refer to any unbearable hardship. But others say David started by darkness on the account of that it was so effective in provoking the people to abide to the commands of Moses and Aaron. Because only after darkness, the plague of darkness, they asked the Israelites to leave. Yes, they changed their mind later on, but this was the first time. So the word they, they did not rebel against his word, can refer to the Egyptians. And the reference must be 
to their change of feeling toward the Israelites after the plague of darkness, as we read in Exodus chapter 11, verse 2 and verse 3. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servant and in the sight of the people. So here we can see how the Egyptians did not rebel against God's command. But some say that they referred to Moses and Aaron, not the Egyptians, who did not disobey God's command, but boldly did what God wanted them to do. And after mentioning the crucial plague of darkness, the psalmist refers briefly to other plagues. In verse 29, he turned their water into blood and killed their fish so that they had no water to drink. This judgment may be because they shed the blood of infant boys. As Pharaoh decided, any boy born, he should be killed. That's why it was the first of the ten plagues. And lest they may assume that it is just a change of the color of the water and not its essence, not the water turned really into blood, he killed all the fish in the water. Verse 13. Their land abounded with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. This is mostly a mere account of the plagues in the order in which they occurred, but without the details of the circumstances. The frogs poured upon them, not only in such numbers, great number, but also with violence and strength, to the extent that they, should not, they could not keep them out of the chambers of the kings and great men. St. Augustine says, as if he were to say, David wanted to say, he turned the land into frogs, for there was so great a multitude of frogs. Verse 31, he spoke, God spoke, and there came swarms of flies and lice in their territory. So this is the third and fourth plague. And here I want you to notice, God can make use of the humblest, weakest, and most awful animal like lice or flies for punishing and humbling the proud obsessors, like fear. Verse 32, he gives them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. So instead of rain to enrich and water their trees, he gives them hail to crush them, and with the thunder, fire, and lightning, to such a degree, fire darted to the ground. Egypt was not used to rain, but watered by the Nile River, but now it had 
heel for rain and severe hailstorm such as was never seen in the land of Egypt before. As we read in Exodus chapter 9:24, there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like, like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Verse 33, he struck their vines also and their fig trees and splintered the trees of their territory. Their vines turned into barren wilderness when God splintered all the trees. Verse 34, he spoke and locusts came, young locusts without number and ate up all the vegetation in their land and devoured the fruit of their ground. A great multitude of locusts covered the land that it was even darkened by them and were such as had never been seen before. And this is the plague number eight. The locusts destroyed all vegetations as these creatures usually do. We read in Exodus 10, 15, and devoured the fruit of their ground, which the hill left, for they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees, which the hill had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees, or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 36, He also destroyed all the firstborn in their land, the first of all their strengths. David concluded by the last and greatest plague which was prevailed upon the Egyptians to let Israel go. This plague was the terrible death of the firstborn in every household, both of men and animal, the firstborn of the king on the throne and the firstborn of the maidservant. Every firstborn which was not protected by the blood of the Passover lamb. Verse 37, he also brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes. When Israel came out of Egypt, the Egyptians gave them great riches. God let them have favor in the eyes of the Egyptians, who rushed to give them whatever they asked for of gold and silver vessels. So Israel marched out of Egypt like a victorious army with the spoils, which were basically the reward of their long inflicted service. We know they were oppressed and they did not get their reward. So actually this spoil of gold and silver was their reward for all the years of oppression. All those who walked had strength given to them and did not stumble by the way. As he said, there was none feeble among his tribes. Verse 38, Egypt was glad when they departed, 
for the fear of them had fallen upon them. The Lord brought them out with a strong hand, while the Egyptians were afflicted with various diseases, and ultimately all their firstborn were slain. The children of Israel remained unhurt and unharmed by the plague. So these ten plagues did not touch the Israelites. To which David refers when he said there was none feeble among his tribes. And the Egyptians did not seek to stop the the Jews in their departure after the tenth plague, nor did they endeavor to get the gold and silver and other valuable they had lent back from them. Rather, they hurried them away, leave, leave, and rejoiced at their departure, fearing some greater adversity would come upon them. Yes, Pharaoh followed them later on, but at the moment of their leaving Egypt, all the Egyptians were pushing them to leave as quickly as possible. Now he's speaking the journey in the wilderness. He spread a cloud for a covering of fire to give light in the night. So as they journeyed through the wilderness, God gave Israel the protection of a cloud by day. It was like a covering. The cloud was a covering to the Israelite. This explained in Exodus chapter 14. When Pharaoh and his army pursued them, the angel of the Lord put a cloud between the Egyptians and the Israelites so that they could not see each other nor come near each other. And in that manner, the cloud protected them. It was also a cover in the wilderness when it may have sheltered them from the sun's rays. But perhaps its main purpose was to direct them on their way, to tell them when to move and when to stop. Because when the cloud moved, they moved. When the cloud stopped, they stopped. And he provided fire to give them light in the night. These remarkable signs of God's presence and care led Israel throughout the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years. Verse 40, the people asked and he brought quail and satisfied them with the bread of heaven, manna. He opened the rock and water gushed out. It ran in the dry places like a river. So God miraculously supplied nourishment for Israel in the wilderness, providing quail and manna, the bread of heaven. The people asked God, and God sent them quail, but they were severely punished, not because they asked for quail, but because they murmured, they complained. The murmuring of the Israelites is not mentioned in Psalm 105, because the psalmist's object is to point to God's goodness, not to Israel's unfaithfulness or Rebellion. That's why he did not mention anything about how God punished them 
for have asked and, and, and grumbled, as we read in the book of Numbers, chapter 11. God miraculously provided water that gushed forth from the rocks. As we read in Exodus 17, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. The rock is a symbol, a type of Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. As Moses struck the, the rock, it is a symbol of the smitten Christ, the crucified Christ. And as water gushed from the rock, so from the sight of the Lord gushed blood and water. The water did not only gush once, but it became like a river, plentifully and constantly. It ran in the dry places like a river. To this, that promise mentioned in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19 and 20, I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to, drink, to give drink to my people, my chosen. Isaiah chapter 43. So God was faithful to his promise made to Abraham, as we read in verse 42. For he remembered his holy promise. God made a promise, and he was faithful to his promise. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. He brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. God was faithful to his promise made to Abraham and did not forget his descendant in the hour of need. Here we should notice that God's faithfulness to Israel in taking them out of Egypt through the wilderness and into Canaan was all based on a fulfillment of God's holy promise. God bound himself by his promises and regarded his promises wholly. It was not because of the goodness of the Israelites or their obedience to the divine will or their worthiness or merit of, the, of any merit of Israel that such signs and wonders were done to them in Egypt. But it is only because of the grace and goodness of God and his faithfulness to his covenant and promise. And after the destruction of Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, God brought forth the people from bondage. They start to sing to God with great joy and exultation. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And this is the first host we sing it until today in midnight places. That's why he said he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. Verse 44. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles and they inherited the labor of the nations. Land of the Gentiles, the seven nations that dwelt in Canaan and God drove them before Israel. God gave them the lands 
who had a right to do it. Why? Because God is the possessor of heaven and earth. So he has a right to give this land to Israel. In the fullness of time, when the cup of the Gentiles, the idol worshippers, got completely full, they were driven out of their own lands. They lost their labors of their hands to be inherited by God's people, Israel. So the emphasis throughout the psalm lies on God's goodness, his promise, his protection, his providence, and his presence. Last verse. That they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. Praise the Lord. So, God is true to his word. And David reminds God's people of their responsibility. If God is true to to his part of the promise, we need to be faithful. So God rescued the Israelites, brought them into the land, setting them free, not for the ultimate purpose of personal indulgence. No, but they could observe his statutes and keep his laws. It is the contrary to which the Canaanites had done, which made God cast them out of the land. They did not observe the statutes of God. They worshipped idols. So all that God requires in return for so many favors is the observance of his law, which is obedience. And this obedience for us, we will benefit from it. God will not benefit from it. It's for our benefit. Obedience is the greatest, of greatest value to everyone. We will benefit from it. For it always leads to new favors, new graces, of far greater value than the promised land, the earthly promised land. And this is the end of our spiritual and eternal redemption by Christ. That we be zealous for good works. God fulfilled his part of the covenant, new covenant. He shed his blood on the cross. He saved us. So he fulfilled his, his part. Our part in return to be zealous for good works, to live in righteousness, glorify him in our bodies and spirits, which are his. Then the psalm ends with the word hallelujah or praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, the psalm ends just as the previous psalm with the Hebrew word Hallelujah, which literally means praise the Lord, it is right and worthy for God's people to remember his marvelous works and to praise him for all he has done. This actually concludes Psalm 105. Glory be to God forever and ever.